You're listening to Midi Storytime, part of the Spare Change Library. This week we're reading the latest chapter of The Bride of the Tomb by Mrs. Alex McVeigh Miller. Chapter 13 The group in the drawing room gazed at Lily for a moment in mingled awe and consternation, but suddenly, before word or sound broke the trance of silence, the beautiful picture was wholly blotted out and obliterated by a blackness of darkness that filled and flooded the wide hall. Then the sound of women's screams filled the grand drawing room. Lily, Lily, screamed Ada, throwing herself into her father's arms, while Mrs. Vance fell writhing upon the floor, shrieking in abject terror. Lancelot Darling paused a moment to extricate himself from the clinging hands of the kneeling woman, then bounded out into the hall. Darkness met him only as he ran excitedly up and down its length. There was no one there. The front door, standing wide open, attracted his attention. He went out on the porch and looked up and down. Just then, Mr. Lawrence came out and joined in the search. There was no one passing. They went in and found Willis, the aged servitor, who had returned to his post and was lighting up the gas again. Willis, what is the meaning of this? he asked sharply. The hall door open, the gas out, and you absent from your post. On my soul, Mr. Lawrence, I could not help it. I saw a ghost, said the man, looking about him in visible trepidation. Explain yourself, said his master sternly. I went to answer the doorbell, said Willis, trembling. And when I opened the door, there stood a ghost, all in white, looking at me and smiling. I was so frightened, I let go the door handle and ran away. I beg your pardon for neglecting my duty, sir, and leaving the door ajar, concluded the man, humbly. What sort of ghost did you see? asked Mr. Darling. The man's eyes grew large and wild. Perhaps I ought not to tell you, said he. But, begging your pardon, Mr. Lawrence, and yours, Mr. Darling, it was the spirit of our poor lost Miss Lily. Mr. Lawrence grew pale as he looked at the man. Come, Lance. Come, Willis, he said. We will search the house from top to bottom. There is some mystery here which we may penetrate. They looked in every room and closet. They neglected no hiding place from garret to cellar. But no one, either ghost or being, was discovered. Mr. Lawrence went up to Ada's room to see if she was recovering from her agitation. She was lying in bed, pale but very quiet, attended by her maid. He sent the girl away and told his daughter what Willis had seen and how vainly they had searched the house. Papa, what do you think? asked she in low, awestruck tones. Was it indeed, as the man asserts, the restless spirit of my sister? It was like her, only paler and more shadowy, as a spirit might well be. Ada, I do not know what to think, said her father in low-moved tones. I am lost in a maze of doubt and conjecture. Can it be that my daughter's soul cannot rest while her poor desecrated body remains uncoffined? It may be so, said Ada, weeping. What a mournful tone was in that voice as it breathed your name. He started up, pacing the floor in wild agitation. I must go down to Lance, he said. We will go and see the detective again tonight and learn if any clue has been found. We must find her body if skill and money combined can accomplish it. I cannot bear for her restless soul to be seeking its body at my hands. Mrs. Vance had retired to her room in a state of abject terror. She believed that she had seen and heard the veritable spirit of the girl she had murdered, instigated thereto by jealousy. Her bold and venturesome spirit had never yet felt the promptings of remorse for her dreadful deed. She rejoiced that Lily was dead and that the shameful stigma of suicide lay upon her memory, though she was the daily witness of the bereaved family's sorrow, though she saw that Lancelot Darling was aged as if ten years had passed over his head in the past few weeks. Still, she felt no grief for her sin and kept on her resolute way, swearing in her secret soul to win the young man whom she passionately adored and whose wealth and position made him the most eligible parti in the whole city. Love and ambition alike spurred her on to the attainment of her cherished object. But the dreadful revelation of old Haiti had struck a lightning flash of terror to her guilty soul. 
She had believed herself secure in her sin. She had thought it known only to herself of all the world, and the knowledge that her secret belonged to another had almost crazed her with the fear of its betrayal. She regretted that she had not followed the old witch home that day and struck another secret blow that would have sealed the old woman's lips forever. She, who had struck down so ruthlessly the fair and blooming life of Lily Lawrence, would have felt no compunction in ending prematurely the old and sin-blasted existence of Haiti Leverett. All that she lacked was the chance. Now another scathing monition had been hurled against her guilty conscience. In the hour when old Hades continued silence and absence had begun to inspire her with confidence again, when the wooing tones had brought Lancelot Darling to her side, when she could almost feel his breath upon her cheek as he bent to turn the pages of her music. In that supreme hour, the image of the woman she hated had risen to blast her sight and to come between her and the love she sought. It was horrible. It was maddening. She sought her solitary apartment and flung herself face downward on the bed, afraid to lift her heavy eyes lest they should be blasted by the sight of the restless spirit which her guilty hand had driven forth a wanderer from the fair citadel it once inhabited. Do the dead walk, she said to herself, in fearful agitation? Do they revisit the haunts of life and love? Do they ever return and denounce their murderers? Oh God, why do I ask myself these fruitless questions? Do I not know? Have I not looked upon the face of the dead this night? Ah, what if she had pointed a ghostly finger at me and said before them all, Thou art my murderess! Shivering as if with the eggs, she buried her head in the bedclothes. A sudden rap at the door caused her to start violently. Enter, she said, almost inaudibly. It was one of the neat housemaids. She looked concerned at the ghastly white face the widow lifted on her entrance. Are you ill, Mrs. Vance? she inquired. No, yes, that is, my head aches badly, was the confused answer. The maid had heard the story of the ghostly visitor from Willis, and rightly attributed the agitation of the lady to that cause. She did not allude to it, however, as Mrs. Vance did not. She simply said, I found this trinket in the hall as I was passing through it, Mrs. Vance. I have shown it to Miss Lawrence, but she does not know anything about it, so I came to ask if it belonged to you. She held the piece of gold in her hand. Mrs. Vance arose and examined it by the light. It was the broken half of a golden locket such as gentlemen wear on their watch chains. It was a costly workmanship, richly chased, with a delicate monogram set in minute diamonds. The intertwined letters were H.C. It does not belong to me, Mary, answered Mrs. Vance. It is probably broken off from some gentleman's watch chain and dropped as he was passing through the hall. But I do not know to whom it can belong. We have had no visitors today, and indeed I cannot recollect any acquaintance we have with the initials H.C. What do you intend to do with it? I shall ask Mr. Lawrence to take charge of it as soon as he returns, replied Mary. It may be that he can find the owner. It is quite valuable, is it not, ma'am? Yes, it has some value, Mary. The monogram is set with real diamonds, though they are very small. It evidently belongs to a person of some means, said Mrs. Vance, returning the trinket to Mary's hand. The trim little maid said a polite good night and tripped away with the jewel carefully wrapped in a handkerchief. Mrs. Vance, with her thoughts turned into a new channel, sat musing thoughtfully over the little incident. The longer she thought it over, the more mysterious it appeared. To whom can it belong? said she to herself. No gentlemen at all have called here today. Can it have any connection with our mysterious visitation tonight? Chapter 14 Mr. Lawrence detailed to the special detective, Mr. Shelton, the particulars of his daughter's appearance that evening. He was listened to with the closest attention. When he had concluded his story, the detective said, respectfully, I am a very practical man, Mr. Lawrence, and my profession only makes me more so. When I am brought in contact with a mystery, I invariably suspect crime. And I must tell you, I do not believe in the visionary nature of the girl you saw in your hall this evening. I am not a believer in the supernatural. What, then, is your opinion of the phenomenon? inquired Mr. Lawrence. 
that it was no phenomenon at all, answered Mr. Shelton, smiling. It was palpably an attempted robbery. Some girl with a resemblance to your lost daughter was employed to frighten off the man at the door while her accomplices entered the hall, turned off the light, and perpetrated a burglary. But there was nothing stolen, objected Mr. Lawrence. The house was searched immediately, for I had an idea rather similar to yours at first. But nothing had been taken, nor was there any person concealed in the house. The detective smiled blandly in the comfortable knowledge of his own superior wisdom. The thieves were only frightened off that time, said he. They will come again, feeling secure in the belief that the girl played the ghost to perfection. The next time, do not be frightened, but make an instant effort to capture her, and she can soon be forced to reveal her accomplices. You have learned nothing yet about the grave robbers, asked Mr. Lawrence, dismissing the first subject, thinking it quite possible that Mr. Shelton's exposition of the case was a very correct one. I have found the first link in the chain, said the detective, brightening up. You have, said the banker, gladly. It is a very slight clue, though, said Mr. Shelton. I would not have you build your hopes on it, Mr. Lawrence, for it may not lead to anything. The case is a very mysterious one, and so far has completely baffled thorough investigation. But that you have discovered anything at all is an earnest of hope, said the banker. Slight things lead to great discoveries sometimes. Will you give us the benefit of your discovery? It must be held in the strictest confidence, said Mr. Shelton, looking from Mr. Lawrence to Mr. Darling, who had sat quite silent throughout the interview. Of course you know that if suffered to get abroad, it would put the guilty party on their guard. Both gentlemen promised that they would preserve inviolable secrecy. Briefly, then, I have learned that the sexton was bribed to lend out the key of your vault the night of the funeral, Mr. Lawrence. The villain, said Mr. Lawrence hotly. Softly, said the detective. He is not so bad as you think. His error lay in the possession of a soft heart, unfortunately abetted by a soft head. I failed to catch your meaning, said the banker. I mean, said the detective, that poor old man had no thought or dream of abetting a robbery. His consent was most reluctantly forced from him by the sighs and protestations of a pretended lover, who only desired that he might be permitted to look once more on the beloved face of the dead. The sighing Romeo prevailed over the old man's scruples with his frantic appeals and obtained the key, rewarding the sexton with all a lover's generosity. It was returned to him in a short while, and so implicit was his faith in the romantic lover that he never even looked in the vault to see if all was secure. The shocking discovery made the following day by Mr. Darling and yourself so appalled him with its possibilities of harm to himself that he feared to reveal the fact of his unconscious complicity in the theft. Yet he revealed it to you, said Mr. Lawrence. The detectives are a shrewd lot for worming secrets out of people, said Shelton, with one of his noncommittal smiles. I used much finesse with the old man before I made my discovery. I suppose I may feel safe in supposing that you will not molest him at this present critical time. Much depends on secrecy. The case is in your hands. Rest assured I shall not make any disastrous move in it, returned Mr. Lawrence reassuringly. One thing further, said Mr. Shelton. I learned that the man who enacted the hypocritical role of the despairing lover was tall and dark, but have not succeeded in identifying him yet. That is the meager extent of my information at present. I hope and trust it may soon lead to an entire elucidation of the mystery, said the banker, rising to leave. I will report all discoveries tending that way immediately, sir, answered the detective, bowing his visitors out of the office. How are you impressed with Mr. Shelton's powers as a detective, Lance? asked Mr. Lawrence as they walked on a few blocks before hailing a car. I believe he is an able man, but I am not prepared to subscribe to his theory of the event which happened tonight, was the somewhat hesitating reply of the young man. You are not? What then is your opinion? asked the banker, in some surprise. Mr. Lawrence, I believe that it was really and truly our lost Lily whom we beheld tonight, said Lancelot earnestly. Really and truly our Lily? Come, Lance, you talk wildly. Has your affliction turned your brain, poor boy? Recollect that Lily is dead. 
I know, I know. Who could realize that fact more forcibly than I do? But, my dear friend, I did not mean that it was Lily in the flesh. What I meant was that Lily's spirit, the better part of her, which is imperishable, really and truly appeared to us tonight, said the young man, who was of a very impressive and imaginative cast of mind. Mr. Lawrence regarded him curiously. But why should you persist in this belief, Lance, when the clever Mr. Shelton has so clearly shown us the fallacy of the idea? He has not shown us the fallacy of the idea at all, answered Lancelot Darling earnestly as before. He has only given us his practical theory regarding it. Have you any conjecture regarding her object in so appearing to us, if indeed you take the right view of the matter, Lance? asked the banker, impressed by the serious manner of his young friend. I have not thought of it, Mr. Lawrence. I have no distinct or tangible impression at all except this one, which is indelibly fixed on my mind. I believe that the pure white soul of Lily Lawrence looked out visibly upon us tonight from the eyes of the girl whom we saw in the hall. I cannot be mistaken. My soul leaped forth to meet hers as it could not have done for any other woman, mortal or immortal, replied the loyal lover earnestly. Well, here is my car, said the banker, hastening to signal it. Good night, sir, said Lance, turning a corner and going down the street toward his hotel to pass the weary night in restless tossing and sleeplessness, while visions of his beautiful lost love haunted his feverish brain until he was well-nigh driven to madness. Mr. Lawrence went back to the detective next day with the costly broken jewel that Mary the housemaid had found in the hall. He explained to Mr. Shelton that no gentleman had called at the house the day previous except Mr. Darling, who said he had never seen it before. This confirms my view of the case, said Mr. Shelton triumphantly. Did I not say that the girl had one or more accomplices? This was probably dropped by the man in his hurried flight. Yet it would seem to have belonged to a person of taste and wealth. Such a one would not be engaged in a burglary. The mystery only deepens. But may not this be a clue by which to discover the perpetrators of the dastardly act? inquired the banker. It ought to do so, said the detective, frankly. He remained lost in thought a few moments, then inquired, have you any acquaintance who can claim these initials, Mr. Lawrence? Let me think. My circle of acquaintance is large, but I cannot recall anyone claiming H.C. as his monogram. My memory may not serve me correctly, though. Perhaps your card receiver may do better, Mr. Lawrence. Will you examine that and let me know? Certainly. Suppose you accompany me and let us find out at once. I do not feel disposed to let this vexing matter rest. With pleasure, as I have a leisure hour at my disposal. They returned to the house together and entered at once upon their quest. It was not long before their labors were rewarded with success. The detective looked up with a small square of pasteboard in his hand, from which he read aloud triumphantly, Harold Colville! H.C. Harold Colville! exclaimed the banker. Well, really, I had forgotten Mr. Colville. He visits here then, of course, said the detective. He did, at one time, frequently. Latterly, he has discontinued his visits. Indeed, it has been four or five months since he called upon us. Had he any reason for the cessation of his visits? Yes, said the banker promptly. He was a suitor for the hand of my daughter, Lily. She rejected him, being already engaged to Mr. Darling. I have seen Mr. Colville, said Shelton. He is a man of wealth and leisure, dissipated and fast, I have heard. You have been correctly informed, was the reply. Indeed, said Mr. Shelton. He laid the card back as he spoke and rose to take leave. Does this discovery throw any light on the mystery, said the other? I will be frank with you, Mr. Lawrence. It does not. The case seems complicated at present, but it is my business to unravel the crooked skein, and I hope to do so. You will suffer me to retain this bit of jewelry for the present. I wish to see if Mr. Colville can furnish the missing half. You suspect him, then? said the banker, breaking off his sentence because perplexed how to end it. I suspect him of nothing at present, was the reply. This trinket may have been stolen from him and lost by another. I have that to find out. 
If it be proved that Mr. Colville lost this locket in your hall last night, my theory of a projected theft will not hold water. A gentleman of his wealth and position would not need to descend to that phase of crime. Some other object must have actuated him. He paused, drawing on his gloves. There is one thing more, he resumed. Keep this mutual discovery we have made a dead secret until I give you leave to reveal it. Do not even mention it to your daughter or to Mr. Darling. He does not believe the theory I advanced last night. I read it in his expressive features. He thinks he really saw a spirit. Let him think so still. I am gathering the tangled ends of a fearful mystery in my hands. But if human skill can unravel it, I will not fail to do so. Good day, Mr. Lawrence. He tripped airily away down the street with the air and manner of a well-bred gentleman. Few who saw the well-dressed man swinging his natty little cane so jauntily and wearing that supremely indifferent air would have supposed him to be the most daring and accomplished detective in the state of New York. So thought Mr. Lawrence as he watched him walk away. That concludes this week's installment of The Bride of the Tomb. This production of The Bride of the Tomb features the voice talents of Laura Bang and Damien Katz. Chris Hallberg voices the intro and outro narratives. The theme music is The Guava Rag by Brett Donnelly. Midi Storytime in the Spare Chambers Library produced by Lancelot Darling and Friends. This podcast is brought to you by DimeNovels.org, the Edward T. LeBlanc Memorial Dime Novel Bibliography.